This is Jane Smith reporting for WASP News. We report so you don't have to decide. Now, we're live outside of Sovereign Studios, where a protest has been taking place. Uh, sir, sir, what is going on here? We're going to put an end to his godless hedonism. He's corrupting the entire planet. Uh, you must be talking about the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. That's right. That sex fiend of an anarchist has crossed the line. We're going to rip his triple black clothing and then him to shreds. But Brian Sovereign believes in nonviolence. We don't care. He wants to end government and wants to pervert science and technology to do it. Brian Sovereign has to be stopped. This just in. Brian Sovereign is coming out of the studio. subversion, baby. That's right. The Golden Stallion. The Man of Tomorrow. Savzu. The Libertine-in-Chief. Shall I go on? Ready for another episode of Sovereign Tech. This week, let's get into it because we've got so much to cover. Oh, baby. But I got to tell you, before we hit the random access, I am really excited. I got a couple things coming up. I am really, really excited. One of them, I was very graciously invited and asked to speak at, amazingly, a Bitcoin conference. Yes, I am so honored. Bitcoininvestor.com is the website where you can get all the information, uh, tickets, and all that stuff. It'll be in Las Vegas. And you know, anytime I go to Vegas, I make it like my backyard, baby. And I can't wait. Of course, the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy, she will be there as well. uh, And she'll be giving an intro talk. And I have a talk. Oh, man. (laughs) You're going to want to see this or at the very least hear this. And I'll do my best to uh, to make that content available uh, when I can. But that's really exciting. That's going to be the end of October. Uh, I believe it's the 29th to the 30th, something along those lines. But you can go to BitcoinInvestor.com to check uh, that out. Uh, I really you know, appreciate getting invited to that. Uh, also, Keenvention. Boy, talk about something that's going to be on the map. Uh, now, originally, my Keenvention talk, which that's coming up also the end of October, uh, they're, they're going to kind of run parallel. So I'm going to be doing a really, really tight schedule uh, as far as flights go. Um, but with Keenvention, shockingly, Gavin Andreessen is going to be there. He's going to be on the Bitcoin panel there, and he is going to be, I believe, a keynote speaker. Uh, you can go to Keenvention.info to find out about that. I love Keenvention. 
Like I really do. And I'm very excited. Uh, I had to, I originally was going to be giving a talk on Friday or I was going to be, uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to, I was going to be doing my tech panel, which of course the golden stallion three time, three time, the only panel host that has been invited back all three keenventions so far. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to be a part of it. Uh, every, every single year, it is really a wonderful event. Uh, and you know, the interesting thing was, is that my tech panel, that I'm that I'm hosting there originally was going to be on Friday, I believe, right after the Bitcoin panel. Woo. <laughs> Am I glad I don't have to follow up that act anymore? Because I have uh, due to appearing in Vegas, uh, I had to reschedule my tech panel to Sunday morning at like 9 a.m. Certainly an ungodly hour, but then I'm a pretty ungodly guy. <laughs> so <laughs> it works just fine with me. <laughs> uh, but the tech panel will be great. I, I have a, a great lineup uh, of guests. I have the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy. I have uh, Rob Mathias of uh, The Rebel Love Show, which uh, the listeners of this show certainly know about. Uh, and also I have uh, Dennis Goddard, uh, who I believe works for Oracle. I, I've, got a, I've got other people. It's, it's a great lineup. It's going to be fantastic stuff. So if you want to catch Keenvention, please do that. If you want to go wild on these red-eye flights with me, of course, you're welcome to attend both events, uh, if, if you wish. Uh, certainly, I think they're both going to be just, just fantastic. And obviously, they have some classy people speaking at these things. The lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and myself included. Woo! So do catch that. Uh, and of course, if you want to help out, you know, with tra uh, travel expenses and whatever that, you know, that I do to be able to get out a lot of these messages at these events, uh, you know, please feel free, uh, you know, to donate to the show. You can go to zog.ninja and you will, you, you'll find the support us tab at the top and you can just click on that. And there's a ton of ways, Patreon, Bitcoin, Litecoin. I mean, there's just, just tons of ways to donate to the show and many already have. And I really do uh, appreciate that. Uh, so anyway, and, and also check out the, the link in the show notes uh, for this episode. We're on episode 141, the countdown to episode 150, baby, Woo, where we're going to shake some things up. Uh, but you can look in the show notes and all the links that I talk about in the show, of course, are there. There's a section called appendix and you can find it. So anyway, we got that out of the way. Uh, you know, one thing I want to address real quick before we touch the random access as well. And I don't know when I'll talk about this because I'm really compiling. I'm doing a big compilation. Last week, we talked about the fact that North Dakota is now allowing for armed drones. Uh, and I've, I'm starting to compile what technologies actually exist that one could use against said drones. And I did find out that Boeing, of course, Boeing loves them some drones, uh, but they have developed a laser technology that actually works very well against drones. Uh, and so that that's something. So point being is that it is possible technology does exist, whether or not it can get, get into the hands of the more or less everyday person or perhaps the concerned person. Uh, that's another story. But I am compiling that. I just want you know to let people know because... You know, I, I think sometimes people think this show, you know, the sovereign tech is a bit of a downer and it, you know, I, I'm actually very hopeful about the future. Like, I think the future is going to be a beautiful thing. I mean, it may not be for everybody, but then the present and the past was never a beautiful thing for everybody either. That's unfortunate. And I wish it were different. Um, but I think the future, you know, by and large is going to be a wonderful thing for people that want to live a, you know, a great life. And so, you know, please, please don't confuse me. You know, that's why I like to talk about solutions. And so I'm gathering solutions, you know, on all of that. Please, please don't be, you know, down about the fact. I mean, because it's very serious, you know, that, that, that uh, is, I mean, it's preposterous that there are, even with non-lethal munitions, that there are armed drones 
uh, in this country and the fact that nobody is really seemingly getting riled up. I've heard other tech shows talk about it. And I mean, it's all just very blase that they discuss it. And it's like, wow, you, you know, do, <laughs> has anybody got any heart left in them? But anyway. Let's get into the random access. Let's move on. I've, I've got a great opening story I want to talk about, and we've got some, boy, a very highly requested uh, topic during Tech Roulette that I want to get into. So let's do this. Uh, why don't we open up with my favorite company, that being Alphabet, uh, <laughs> of course, being sarcastic about that. Uh, they last week, I believe I talked about um, the OnHub, or maybe it was the week before. And this is Google's slash, you know, alphabet slash Google. Uh, remember, I consider it important to, you know, I mean, you, you're not, as time goes on, I'm not going to say the word Google so much. Uh, it's going to be far more talking about alphabet because I think it's really important. As I said many times, it's important to keep an eye on the fact that, yes, this is still one company and everything they do is in some form interconnected. And so you don't want to separate and start thinking, oh, well, because I because I think this is a lot of what Larry Page is going for. Well, yeah, OK, so the, the company trying to end death has nothing to do with all of the data collection that we're doing at Google or whatever the case may be. No, no, no. They're very interconnected in what that's going to end up as, uh, you know, T-virus. I, mean, I Sorry, that was a mistake. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. So anyway. Alphabet, they're on hub. Uh, I talked about this a couple weeks ago because I had said that really what the on hub is about is project Fi. It's about bolstering project Fi, and it's about the internet of things about, you know, uh, getting on top of home automation on alphabets part. And I think this is all still true, but one of the things that I had to admit, at least on the initial understanding of the technology of, of the on hub router was like, God damn, this is a good router. <laughs> it's like, this is great. I mean, it has 13 antennas. It can supposedly do this auto switching where it'll get you, you know, on the, uh, uh, on the best, uh, uh, signal and all of this. And, and, you know, just this really, really solid router. And it was disappointing because certainly I don't want to fund Google and, you know, in any, or, you know, fund alphabet in any way. So I wouldn't want to buy the damn thing. Uh, but, what we found out this week is actually that apparently that's not so true, that it's not the fastest router. In fact, uh, uh, Asus has the spider uh, router. I believe that's what it's called. And that has like eight antennas only, but it's blazing fast and it's significantly faster than the on hub. So, so Google's router is not the top of the heap uh, by any means, but also apparently that ability to auto switch, uh, you know, signals is not, it's not true. It doesn't, it's, it's not real. Uh, so really anything that made the on hub router, unless you're into the internet of targets, I mean, internet of things, uh, you know, unless you're into the internet of things to be hacked. Oh God, I'm so sorry. Unless you're into the internet of things, um, unless you're into security holes, holy shit, will you stop? <laughs> uh, unless you're into the internet of things, it's not, there's nothing intriguing about it. And I would recommend, I mean, it costs 200 bucks anyway. I would recommend, you know, buying the, the Asus spider. Uh, when that is released, if you're looking for a new router, uh, far superior uh, in every way. So and also, you know, I mean, uh, the third generation Nest thermostat uh, has been released this week, which I'm sure is not uh, it's not coincidental that the OnHub is released and then the third generation Nest uh, is released. I imagine they're designed to to work well with each other. And the only real advancement is it, most people have said that the third generation Nest is a pretty iterative uh, uh, build or, you know, model. There wasn't anything huge. Uh, delivered about it. The two things that it can do. One is, is that the screen uh, is far more readable now. And, you know, from a distance 
And then it also knows when someone is in the room and when someone is in the room, it will have the screen, you know, it, it allows for that, that greater readability of the screen and it'll brighten up and, you know, the color will turn on. So essentially it's a tracking device within your own home. Uh, you know, and why wouldn't you want that? I mean, you know, it just makes sense for Alphabet to know where you are every second within your house. I mean, that, that, of course, you know, I mean, your smartphone does that too. Why the fuck, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Uh, <laughs> I hope you sense all the heavy sarcasm that I'm laying out on you right there. Uh, but anyway, let, let's let's move on from that. <laughs> I actually, you know what? While we're on it, okay, let's talk about a little more alphabet news. This was surprisingly talked about quite a bit, and I'm shocked at how much it was talked about. But also, I'm shocked at the fact that very few people really discussed uh, what I think is the reality of the situation. And that is specifically Google under Alphabet. Uh, they changed their logo. Uh, like system wide, like even Google plus has a different logo now, or well, they changed the font of their logo. I should say they didn't really change the logo that much. Uh, and, and it's funny because particularly with the Google plus, uh, version of the logo, like it, it looks terrible, <laughs> but, uh, overall I think, and I read the blog post on this and everything, you know, when I first saw it, when I first saw Google change their, uh, you know, change their logo, change the font of their logo. When I first saw it, I said, Boy, that looks awfully childish, like the studiousness, because what's in a font? Well, there's a lot in a font and you can look at the, you know, the history of Apple uh, and, and you can see the importance of, you know, of fonts, at least according to the popular history of Apple and the Google symbol, you know, it used to be a very studious looking thing. Like, I mean, you know, it had the serif and all, you know, all this stuff. And it just, it really looked like you were going to a library of sorts and you were reading, uh, not, not an ancient text, uh, but an academic thing, you know, it, it looked, it kind of looked impressive. Okay. And now it just looks really childish. It, it almost looks like it was drawn with crayon. And I think that's interesting. And in fact, at the official blog post about this, the, the words that they used were we wanted uh, a font. We wanted a logo that was simple, uncolor, uncluttered, colorful and friendly. And I think that those four words, you know, that's a direct quote. I think those four words actually highlight what this is about. This is similar to what Amazon's doing. Uh, this is what's what is similar to a lot of what Silicon Valley is doing, except for maybe Microsoft and Apple, which is they're trying to reach out to the fucking kids. They're trying to you know, like, like make it all the more appealing to children. And that is all about, of course, getting children, you know, kind of, kind of trapped into their ecosystem or ensnared, maybe trapped is the wrong word, but ensnared into their eco, into their various ecosystems. Uh, I think that's really what it was about is about to, to make it like appealing to kids. And the shame about that is, is that if you're ma if you're dumbing everything down, well, you know, kids are going to be. Exactly. So <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, so, you know, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or anything like that. I just think that uh, I, I think it looks ridiculous. Uh, it doesn't look clean. It doesn't look at, you know, anything uh, of the sort. Uh, I think it just looks downright childish. And that's v that's very unfortunate for something that is all about collating knowledge. Uh, I really have an issue with that. So anyway, uh, let, let's let's move on to another story here. Steam. This is interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Steam. Uh, I love your valve is the company, of course, that that owns steam. I love valve. Uh, it is an interesting company is one of those companies that proves and boy, at some point, I would love to talk about this more because Elon Musk had an interesting 
uh, comment about this, about businesses. It's one of those businesses that doesn't really have a hierarchy. Uh, it operates more as a, uh, the technical term collective that does not mean it's communist. Okay. It's just, that's a technical term. That's how the business operates. Uh, and, and it has like, you know, multiple separate teams that it, it actually operates under, uh, sociocracy, uh, those kind of principles, or at least as I understand it, that's, that's how it works. I've never been in Vell's offices. I can't really say, but outside looking in, uh, that's, that's certainly what I've noticed. And I think that's a really good way to, you know, to set up, uh, a company. I, I really appreciate that. So anyway, so I'm very positive on Steam, not just because of the fact that I'm a gamer, uh, but just saying that I like the company uh, overall. And they did something interesting this week. And I don't know what exactly this is all going to mean, uh, but it actually gets into another random access story. Uh, but they there was a game for the movie Mad Max uh, Fury Road, uh, which I did not enjoy. I'll be talking about that more during important messages uh, because people ask me about it. And they made a game for, for Mad Max Fury Road. And they also, so that came out this past week, but they also made available the entire Mad Max uh, anthology of films, you know, the, the original trilogy, all that. And I, I, I saw that and not that, not that that's anything necessarily new. Certainly Steam has, uh, you know, they've released like, uh, uh, various independent gaming movies. Um, they've released like the Mortal Kombat uh, legacy, uh, you know, web webisodes and all of this. Uh, so this isn't necessarily new for them, but this is the first time that they've ever really put something mainstream Hollywood that I'm aware of, you know, on there to, to view. And I, I find that really fascinating. In fact, it creates an interesting relationship that they may be way like, I mean, they might be a decade ahead of the curve in this because steam is also, you know, valve is they're working with HTC on their virtual reality headset. And so now steam also offers movies. You've got a built in, you know, movie player, virtual reality, movie player of some sort. And also, you know, a lot of people talk about with virtual reality that, that you're going to be getting, you know, in the future, you're going to be getting involved. Like you're like every movie is almost going to operate like a game. And so for Valve to be sort of beta testing, how well, you know, can our servers handle people playing movies and all this stuff? I mean, you're creating this relationship between movies and, uh, you know, adjacent licensed properties like video games that in the future could. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, that's a that's a money making boon. I mean, that that's huge. Uh, so I, I thought that was, that was, and I, I love the original Mad Max trilogy, by the way, the, the original trilogy I really enjoy. Uh, but I, I thought that was fascinating. I mean, steam, like this really shows they have the absolute potential, uh, you know, to be like the, the all encompassing, uh, you, you know, entertainment hub and nobody, I don't think anybody else sees it coming. No one else is even talking about this, uh, but they are way ahead of the curve. I think, and, and, and kudos for them because I like, like I said, I like their business model. I like the way, you know, that they do things. You never, you hear all this bullshit out of Silicon Valley, how this does this. And I mean, you never hear you, or at least you rarely hear ugly stories coming out of steam. Like you do with other major companies and steams, you know, steam is a, I mean, that's making money, man. So anyway, now this leads into another point in our random access because, uh, there was talk of the, Oh, what was it called? The, or the Alliance of open media. And this is amazing because this is a partnership, and that's the exact term. This is a partnership between Netflix, not a shock, Microsoft, okay, 
I mean, Netflix and Microsoft used to have a relationship because Netflix operated off of Silverlight. Amazon? Google? Now these one of these things are not like the other. The One of these things are not the same, as they'd say on Sesame Street. Uh, something's happening here. And what I think is going on, I mean, and, and the list goes on. Uh, I think maybe, I don't, I don't know, I don't recall if Sony was on that list, maybe not. But this list goes on and on of who this is. Now, the name's not on this uh, Alliance of Open Media. And what the Alliance of Open Media is all about is creating, uh, you know, uh, standards, codex standards for, you know, for movies like, you know, .avi, .mkv, all that stuff. Uh, it's all about creating, you know, standards that all these, you know, all these companies can can operate under. The interesting names that aren't on there are Hulu, which they just recently came out with. A, I mean, they must be becoming very successful. They just released another uh, subscription model that has no ads whatsoever. Uh, so they, they might end up becoming the new cable. Uh, and then you have uh, Apple, which that's the most interesting one is that Apple's not on there. And we had the report this week as well that Apple is apparently trying to get into the entertainment business themselves as in content creation. They are trying to do what Amazon does, what Netflix does. They're going to create their own shows, supposedly. Uh, who knows what else they're going to create? Probably they're going to make video games and all this stuff. Um, maybe go in the same direction that we talked about that Valve is doing with Steam. But, of course, again, kudos to Valve. They're way ahead of the curve. Already. You know, they're already on top of this. So I think, and this is, you know, th this is interesting. I think that this entire open media alliance is all about taking on, they're scared to death that Apple is going to be getting into the entertainment business. They're terrified. And so everybody, Microsoft, Google, th those are names that sh those Microsoft, you know, uh, Google and Amazon and the word partners. Th I mean, that just doesn't belong that, that like th that's um, that's insane. What the hell is going on? And that's the power of Apple is that I think all these companies are so terrified of what's going to happen, because as soon as Apple says they're going to release something, I mean, it's just it's a guaranteed hit. I, well, it's a guaranteed hit within the Apple community anyway. And that is uh, largely, you know, statistically a very wealthy community. So they can do anything, you know, and people are going to buy. That doesn't mean it's going to catch on like the Apple Watch clearly has not caught on. And by Apple's standards, it's an it's a flop. By Apple's standards, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, a lot of companies, I'm sure, would love to be as successful or you would love to have the sales numbers that, and the, the, the profits that the Apple Watch has garnered already. So anyway, that, that's what I think that's all about. Everybody's like, well, you know, what the hell is this? Why are these companies all partnering together? And I think it's just it's it's simple. They are all terrified as shit of Apple getting involved, uh, you know, in the entertainment business. Amazon is scared. Google is scared. And, uh, you know, Microsoft, I guess, is, is just jumping on board. Uh, and why the hell not? So not, not that Microsoft would have to, because Microsoft is is actually really good about just I mean, this is why some people complain about, you know, the lack of security that Microsoft has uh, in certain ways. And that's because they, you know, they accept pretty much any codec that comes their way. I, 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 that's just, you know, their cheeks are spread for it. And then that's that's how it is with Microsoft. So they didn't need to be a part of it, but not a shock. Uh, certainly that they are. But while we're talking about Microsoft, why don't we go ahead and talk about that? Uh you know, th there's an interesting and I do I want to get into our lead story because we got a lot to talk about there. Uh, there's an interesting thing that occurred this week and some of OK, th where the truth lies in all of this is difficult to discern, partly because Microsoft is such 
a terrible uh, company at communicating. Like they suck at communicating what's going on and what they're doing. Why that is, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what goes on in those hallowed halls, you know, in Redmond that that they just can't explain what the fuck they're doing at, at any given moment. And so what what was found out was that if you have Windows 7 or Windows 8, there was a not a critical update. It was a recommended update. And those are very different. OK, but there's a recommended update that came down the pipe that created the same telemetry transmission that everybody has been freaking about, you know, that goes to Bing, that everybody has been freaking about, uh, freaking out about with Windows 10. That when you go in the search bar and you type something in and it, you know, shoots up, uh, you know, it shoots up to Bing and who knows what that was. And of course, we talked about it on Sovereign Tech and I said that I think that's all about authentication. That's all that it is, is all about authenticating software and the Windows install itself, because now that they know that the Windows Insider program is so successful, they don't need pirates anymore. So now they're not giving pirates any leeway, uh, unfortunately, and, and shame on them for that. Uh, but and of course, we know who who has the most, uh, you know, pirated copies of Windows. U.S. military. We, we proved it. We talked about it on HackSec a long, long time ago on Sovereign Tech. Uh, but anyway, so, well, I guess so if Microsoft's screwing the military, hey, that's all right. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, um, so this is this has come down the pipeline. Now, you don't have to install recommended updates. Most people do by default. Certainly, I would, you know, standardly, if somebody asked me, hey, should I install the recommended updates? I would generally say yes. Uh, but in this case, no, you know, I said, when it comes to critical updates, I'd say, oh, absolutely, you you install those every single time. Uh, but this is interesting. This shows, you know, kind of the the unfortunate nature, and I think it's probably scaring a lot of people, and understandably so. That with Windows 10, with since you can't really, though, though I've heard there's tricks around this. Maybe we'll talk about that in the future on Sovereign Tech. Uh, with Windows 10, that you can't not update if you're using the home version. Uh, you know, if someone, if they put out tracking, you know, more tracking software or more, you know, random telemetry, uh, you know, uh, bug fixes and updates into the OS, you don't have a choice. You can't not use them. You can't not do something about them. And I understand that concern, uh, you, you know, no doubt. And we'll certainly we'll be following this and talking about it more on Sovereign Tech in the future. Uh, but Windows 10, you know, to, to have this go backwards to seven and eight, uh, I mean, you know, one could make the argument if you're really that concerned about it and you're going to stick with Windows 7, how do you know it's not getting installed somewhere else anyway? And this is the thing is that, you know, if Microsoft would just open their mouths and say what they're doing and talk about this and be open about it, uh, you know, I think people would say, OK, well, at least I have the choice, you know, and not only that, they not only need to be open about it, but they really need to make it, uh, you know, not the default uh, like like with their, you know, join our customer improvement program and all this stuff. The checkbox is always automatically checked. No, that should be one that is unchecked. So there's there's ways that this could be done to where it's a little more palatable to those that are concerned about their privacy and security. And they're not doing it. They're, they're really, really not. Uh, so I understand this. But, you know, something I want to bring up because I get a little annoyed about this because some people think, you know, that I'm very pro Microsoft. I'm very pro the present direction that they've been going in up until now, you know, since Satya took over, I saw some incredible things. I thought that they were really pushing uh, the PC revolution forward again, uh, which, you know, one could say that they, they were behind it, you know, all the way. I think they were starting to push it forward again. All right. Uh, that that's a topic for another time. But I'm not I'm not that pro Microsoft. OK, <laughs> and I'm certainly not an apologist for them. Uh, but David Weiner, who, if you don't know his name, look him up because he is one of the granddaddies 
of computer science, uh, just a really, you know, really important guy uh, in the field. And he did a write up this week. He actually did it on Facebook of all ironies saying that Mac OS is spyware too. And this is the thing is that people will say to me, you know, cause it's so funny. I'll say to them, it's like, well, you know, okay, fine. You don't want to use windows. You know, all these problems that people will lay out with me with windows, they'll say, and that's why I use OS 10, you know, Mac OS. And I'm, uh, are you kidding? You know, if you're going to, if you're going to go on and on and on about windows, you might as well. I mean, yes, OS 10 is better in some ways. Sure. Okay. But don't tell me that and then say you're not doing anything less than going to Linux. Okay. <laughs> and he did this interesting, just a quick write-up. Uh, it's, it's Mac OS is spyware too. All of a sudden, my Mac is telling me whose birthday is tomorrow. People I don't even know that well. How did that happen? I don't like my computer randomly and unpredictably getting all quote-unquote social on me. It's a tool. Try to imagine a carpenter's hammer starting to nag about an upcoming bar mitzvah. A baseball player's bat starting to warn you about overdue bills. Who asked for this shit? <laughs> Kudos, Mr. Weiner. Uh, I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and and of course, you know, some people responded to it and said, oh, well, somewhere on the OS, you should have put, you must have put in your Facebook account, you know, logged in with your Facebook account. That's what happened. Well, then you're, you know, let's say that even that's true. And, and, and David Weiner said that that didn't happen, but let's say that that was even true. Well, then your fucking system isn't sandboxed properly. Your fucking system is all interconnected. And I mean, how do you know, you know, your Facebook account information is asked for in so many goddamn places. How the hell are you going to, you know, how can you know, how can you keep track of this stuff? It, it, I mean, it's ugly shit on, on everybody's part, you know, all of these cloud centric operating systems I agree. It's ugly, but don't go complaining about one. Don't go calling, you know, don't go calling crap on one of them and then say, and that's why I use this one. You know, it's like the people that say, well, I don't use Facebook. I use Google plus really. Come on. Pot kettle black folks. Anyway, uh, that I, I had a couple other stories I wanted to get into with the random access, uh, but I can save those for another time. Uh, why don't we go ahead and let, let's break into our main story because we've got a doozy. And the story this week, actually, this is kind of a kind of a double tech roulette today because this story was highlighted to me from uh, Daryl W. Perry, just an absolute sweetheart of a guy uh, <laughs> who, of course, FPP.cc, if you want to find out about all his work. I mean, man, in fact, he just had a new book come out that was kind of a. Um, I think it's a rebel's journey, sort of a, uh, an autobiography of sorts. Uh, boy, I loved it anyway. Uh, so yeah, so here we go. This is a bit of a longer story from coin telegraph and actually Daryl Perry, you know, when he sent it to me, he said, you know, Brian sovereign, the golden stallion often talks about, he gave me credit and I appreciate it. How there's the tyranny of the blockchain. And he said, how about this story for you? And so I won't read this entire story, but we will get into it. And of course, again, from the, uh, from Cointelegraph by Brian Cohen, Vermont considering blockchain tech for state records and smart contracts. Oh, <laughs> what did I say? How long would it be? And we're talking years ago. I said this. How long would it be until governments get in on this game? How long until governments use this to have their nice immutable records? Let's read on. 
Vermont has recently taken some legislative steps that could see the state using Bitcoin's technology for state records, smart contracts, and other applications in a drive to become, quote, a leader in the field, end quote. On June 3rd, 2015, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin signed into law number 51, an act relating to promoting economic development, S-138, which contained Section 8.3, Study and Report, blockchain technology so they've got all the verbiage right in vermont well done government you've shown a slight amount of intelligence this mandates that a report be written uh, by by january 15 2016 which has quote findings and recommendations on the potential opportunities and risks of creating a presumption of validity for electronic facts and records that employ blockchain technology end quote There was also an amendment, not yet signed into law, by Senator Balint, which appears to be Vermont's roadmap if there are favorable findings in the report due early next year. On April 8th, uh, amendment to S-138 added in a third reading. Uh, Let's see, Section 47, 9 VSA, Chapter 2, holy hell. (laughs) Electronic verification of facts and records, blockchain enabling. It states in part that, quote, a blockchain or blockchain technology shall be a recognized practice for the verification of a fact or record. And those facts are records established through a valid blockchain technology process uh, shall have a presumption of validity for matters to be determined subject to or in accordance with the laws of the state of Vermont. End quote. Of note, neither the bill signed by the governor nor the amendment put forth by the senator reference Bitcoin, but rather the distributed or yeah, the distributed immutable worldwide ledger database that Bitcoin runs on the blockchain. There has been an increasing trend recently of individuals disassociating themselves with Bitcoin and co-opting the blockchain. In part, this has to do with the unfair negative association of Bitcoin with cases ranging from uh, Mt. Gox to Silk Road. Both of these services conflated legacy, uh, conflated legacy systems and trusting third parties with private keys with Bitcoin to patch together unsafe conduits for trade. Legislation such as, such as that from Vermont seems to follow the same path of burying Bitcoin and at the same time embracing it. This also has to do with the recent Bitcoin 2.0 awakening uh, that the Bitcoin blockchain public ledger is not merely a rail to move virtual currency, but a powerful means to transmit and transmit information and has even been referred to as a truth machine, among other applications. Now, Stallion breaking in here real quick. Uh, This is already being done. You know, it's interesting that this is happening in Vermont. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a positive thing, but we'll get into that more in a second. Uh, but this is already happening in France, I believe. There is already a company that is doing what is essentially proof of existence of documents. I think they're working with Creative Commons, and I believe it's built upon Adept, which, of course, is IBM's little blockchain technology, which is kind of based off of Ethereum. Uh, and actually, you know, Ethereum came out with a uh, Rush wallet uh, that this this past week which uh oh boy uh, <laughs> but uh, and of course i've theorized that ethereum will eventually get bought out by ibm uh and so you know adept and all that is all, all part of the same same deal so certainly you know what would vermont be using in this case well i would imagine it'd be something along those lines that are already being used and and there's issues if you look into that uh, that french model that's working with creative commons uh there's already issues with it uh because people can essentially put up anything if they want uh so but but that's another story Let's let's read on a bit more. Uh, smart contracts, the who contracts, who contracts. <laughs> the amendment was drafted by Oliver R. Goodenough. That's his 
That's his real name. <laughs> Oliver Goodenough. Eh, he's good enough. I wonder, did, did he, did he, uh, like when he ran for politics, vote for good enough? <laughs> a, a vote for Oliver is a vote for good enough. <laughs> Oh, I, okay. He's director of the Center for Legal Innovation, so he's just a lawyer. Uh, he's a good enough lawyer. <laughs> he's not a politician yet, uh, though they're one and the same, in my opinion, uh, many times. Professor at law at the Vermont School of Law. In an April 1st, 2015, I assume this is an April Fool's joke, memorandum to the House Committee on Commerce and Economic Development, uh, remaking Vermont's legal structure hospitable to e-commerce, good enough provided a background and a summary of his testimony, which included, quote, draft Vermont blockchain enabling law, end quote, which includes some verbiage that's virtually identical to the amendment. Good enough's testimony was it good enough. Sorry, the joke's too good. It includes a section entitled, quote, general e-contract recognition, end quote. And the following is an excerpt, quote, significant progress is being made in systems that will permit the statement of contractual obligations in software. This ranges from academic work, such as the my co-authored paper with Mark Flood of the Treasury Office, Treasury's Office of Financial Research to the application of companies like Ethereum and Exari. Aha, there is there's the mention. Vermont has already explicitly recognized this possibility in its digital corporation legislation extending this principle to other contexts would again make vermont a leader in the field end quote the memorandum citations are very interesting and also includes a reference to an office of financial research of the u.s department of treasury working paper quote contract is automaton the computational representation of financial agreements end quote from march 26 2015 just a few days prior to good enough's testimony the paper includes this is the federal paper, not just the Vermont paper. So the federal government is totally into this and they are already, you know, on top of it. The paper includes a reference to a YouTube Ethercast, quote, Ethereum contracts as legal contracts, computational legal studies, end quote, which features Tom Johnson, a patent attorney, delivering a presentation at the Silicon Valley Ethereum meetup at the Plug and Play Tech Center. Johnson describes how Ethereum and smart contracts can be a legal contract. Well, Stallion here to tell you, I can t legal is bullshit. Uh, of course, I'm an anarchist. Everybody knows that. Uh, <laughs> and without legal just means backed by the gun. Backed by enforcement, which in the end would probably have to be the gun. Otherwise, you know, I suppose why bother doing it? Right. Uh, and that's what I would say. Don't do it. So keep that in mind that when you hear the word legal nine times out of ten, we're talking about something being backed by the gun and thus Ethereum. Maybe just, you know, it, it shouldn't be guilt by association, but that whole idea is something that is eventually that in a very real sense could be backed by the gun, according to Vermont, as well as the federal government. Uh, but let's let's read on. In a nod to a 2008 article by founding executive editor Wired magazine, Kevin Kelly, brilliant guy, uh, the working paper concludes in part that, quote, putting computational tools to work in the context of law and justice has the potential to revolutionize aspects of the legal system with significant consequences for markets, government and society. Law is being turned. It is time to recognize the fact and to work to make the process as beneficial as possible, end quote. The concept of smart contracts is widely believed to be conceived of by cryptographer Nick uh, Zabo. S quote, smart contracts formalizing and securing relationships on public networks was published by first 
uh, end quote, was published by First Monday Peer Review Journal in September 1997. The abstract from this paper below explains what a smart contract is, uh, reads like it could have been written just yesterday. Quote, Smart contracts combine protocols with user interfaces to formalize and secure relationships over networks. Objectives and principles for the design of these systems are derived from legal principles, economic theory, and theories of reliable and secure protocols. Similarities and differences between smart contracts and traditional business procedures based on written contracts, controls, and static forms are discussed. By using cryptographic and other security mechanisms, we can secure many algorithmically uh, specifiable relationships from breach by principles and from eavesdropping or malicious inter, uh, interference by third parties up to considerations of time, user interface and completeness of the algorithmic specific specification. Okay. Enough of the article. Uh, <laughs> let's let really let's break into this. Uh, you know, it's an interesting point. My whole, you know, or a lot of my points against the idea of smart contracts against really contracts in general, I think they're all terrible ideas. Uh, can be found actually i think on youtube it's available i gave a talk at coins in the kingdom uh it's it was about bitcoin 2.0 and actually nick sabo uh, on, when i shared it on twitter he favorited it of all things when i am speaking directly against what he was proposing i don't know what to make of that but it's there it's a fact now it's interesting i was actually this week uh, you can find it on the Zog blog, and maybe I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes for this episode. I was uh, graciously asked to be on uh, a podcast I really enjoy, which is called Peace Propaganda. It's hosted by Adam Alpo. does a hell of a job. And he interviewed me for his show. It's already out there and released. And he asked me towards the end, what's the one thing you don't think anybody's seeing that you find very disconcerting, that concerns you? And I said, you know, the blockchain technology, uh, you know, by and large, I think is kind of concerning. Um, be, you know, the fact that it can be this immutable record and that it could be used for ID systems, for contracts and for all of this, that bothers me. Now, blockchain, you know, Bitcoin is, is somewhat of a, a different story. I mean, as long as it stays dumb, you know, and it is just money, then fine, because really there's no other, th you know, there's nothing else that you can do on top of that that's going to make things any more free. Certainly not putting ID and proof of existence and all this other stuff. Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't buy that as being any kind of freeing force. Uh, but I made that case. And Adam Elpo, who, as I understand it, actually has a degree in history. He is a student of history like myself. He made he said this great point. I'm not directly quoting, but but this is the gist is that the greater the tyranny, the greater the record keeping was the point that he essentially made. And I thought that was dynamite. I was like, yes, exactly. The greater the tyranny, the greater the record keeping. And there's historical precedent for this. Because in the end of the day, and I, you know, I've heard, I've heard uh, Nick Sabo say this too, that he wants like birth certificates on, uh, you know, on, on blockchains and all this stuff. What, you know, what examples do we have? Has anything like this ever been done before? You know, putting these things into, uh, you know, this collation of, of identity documents and contracts and all this various thing, you know, how, how did, how has that worked out when it's been done, uh, forcibly en masse? And that's the thing is that again, we're talking about legal contracts. This is stuff that would be enforced and thus in many ways forced upon you. Okay. Uh, now. I can easily just go to Hitler and bring up IBM's own program, which of all ironies, now IBM is making ADEPT that France is already using and that I think largely probably Vermont would be considering, as well as the federal government. Okay, they created Deamog. I might be mispronouncing that. D-E-H-M-O-G or whatever. Okay, and that was 
that was all about, you know, helping out with the census, with collecting data about the people there. And I'm telling you, you can read the works of Edwin Black and some others, okay, that that is exactly how they were able to round up the Jews so quickly in Nazi Germany. Because the people in power had a complete database of who was who and what is what. Now, I could do that. All right. And I've brought that up before, but that's a little easy, man. And it's some people will be like, well, come on. That was fucking 60, 70 years ago. That can't be true now. Well, then let's have is 30 years. Okay. With you is a little over 20 years. Okay. With you as a better example, because we've got one apartheid South Africa. There was various acts that were put into place. They were all about forcing IDs on people. And in fact, if you were a child in the United States, and I'm sure other countries, if you were a child in the 70s and 80s, there was a on the news, in school, you know, wherever, or if you're an adult, then too, you'll know about this. Okay, there was this this rhetoric being spread around the United States that said, oh, be glad you live in America where ID is not required, where these things are not required, because look what's happening in South Africa. You know, there, these 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 uh, proverbial ghettos, these whole, you know, this this mass segregation and all this stuff was occurring and, uh, you know, mass, ra- you know, institutionalized racism was occurring and people were dying and, you know, and, and starving and all these other terrible things. It used to be in this country that is now just screaming for, you know, identity like national ID systems and, and even people in Silicon Valley who are like, oh, how can we how can we attach ID to the fucking blockchain? It used to be in this very country where all that is now being, you know, is all getting schlepped around. It used to be that, no, 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 IDs, that's terrifying. We're going to end up like South Africa. Don't give us that. Don't do that. Hey, where did all that go? I guess the history books might have been erased or stopped getting taught because too many people consider history boring. Gee, I wonder what's behind that. There's no need for this. I mean, contracts in general, contracts all come down to enforcement. And are you for force? If it's a voluntary contract, then it's a voluntary contract. That, that's, that's no big deal here. But we're talking about this stuff getting put into the system that is, the, feudal, the neo-feudal system that is of the United States of America, the colonies. And there's people that I, would, that I know are or at least claim to be very liberty minded uh, people like behind that are behind factum and all these other things. I mean, this is what they want to do. They want to line all this up. They want to collate all this information. They want to have all this, you know, data collection and they want this immutable record. And look, you know, yes, you can choose to have an immutable record, but then it's not necessarily legal. Is it? That's the problem is this language of legal. That's where the issues come in. Yeah, you can choose to, you know, to, to have an immutable record of what you do and all this stuff, but it always needs to be a choice. Everything needs to be a choice. You need to be able to walk away from things. I'm sure, please, folks, you think the government wouldn't love to have this stuff? And I mean, just just take the example. I mean, we can even do more. We could go ancient historical examples of what happens. We could talk about the books of the ships from the from Alexandria that were ordered. Governments love records. 
They love it. They love big centralized records. And so much of this blockchain technology is ramming that down our throats. Uh, what else? Something else I heard recently. We talked about city banks and what I called bank chains because they're developing their own, uh, their own blockchains. Uh, I heard recently that every single major bank in the world is already, already has pilot programs for blockchain technology. Way to go. Looks like we got away from that fucking system, didn't we? From the legacy system. I guess not. I guess Bitcoin was its own little pilot program. And people are just dying to, to get involved and be a part of it. It's so creepy. The answer, of course, is to, I mean, fortunately, blockchain technology is largely open source. Uh, and, you know, we, you know, people, liberty minded people can create their own right now. Use their own shit. And with Bitcoin, actually, we can pay attention to the lessons of history that are going on right now, because maybe this kind of technology is going to be used to enslave us in the near future. I'm not saying Bitcoin's enslaving us. I'm saying some of this blockchain technology is. And we've got to be real clear with people that it in of itself is not the freeing force. It's all about ideology. Sega challenges you with the ultimate video game. The Sega Master System. Hang on, hang on. With more accurate control, more detailed graphics, more levels of play. Awesome! The Sega Master System comes with power base, two control pads, light phaser, and two great video games. Hang on, it's a Safari Hunt. Gotcha! And with other games like Ramble, Outrun, and Choplifter, the excitement never stops. The Sega Master System. The challenge will always be there. Thank you for the exclusive, Mr. Sovereign. Please, Jane. It'll be our pleasure. Tea? Oh, thank you. I must say, for an anarchist, you're not what I expected. I'll assume that's a compliment. It is. Uh, is it true what they say about you? That you're a godless hedonist, bent on ending governments and conservative values? All true. But, but... What about supporting the troops, marriage, white picket fences, and apple pie? <laughs> Come on, Jane. I love pie. As far as everything else, it's all just here to keep you from being happy. Wouldn't you rather be traveling the world, fucking every day, not worrying about what other people think? Uh, oh, my, Mr. Sovereign. Come to think of it, I never felt like I fit into the system very well. I always wondered what it's like to be with an anarchist. Well, here's your chance to roll the roulette wheel and find out. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette. And of course it is I, Dr. Brian Sovereign, here with you. And what is that PhD in? Well, it's in treason. That's right. <laughs> or maybe it's in blasphemy. I don't know. Yeah, I should write up those certificates. Have You can get a Ph.D. in treason and a Ph.D. in blasphemy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, no, actually, the Ph.D. is in uh, it's a doctorate of divinity, but don't worry, I'm an atheist. Uh, <laughs> oh, the ironies. Uh, let's get into this week's Tech Roulette. Of course, this is where you send me stories and I will cover them. You get to take control of the show for a little while. Uh, and then we do important messages where I, I answer your messages and all that. Um, and I this is one what I got this week was very interesting okay and it actually took me a while one of the you know okay one of the things that happens on the internet 
is that, and I hate this because it's based upon oftentimes, you know, really undeserved reputation. But when someone sends me a story and it comes from, I don't know, some, some webs like collective evolution, which is a terrible website, uh, or, you know, it, it comes from whatever, so, some website that's not really, you know, that well known. I'm instantly skeptical and I instantly go to DuckDuckGo, not Google. I go to DuckDuckGo and I search, okay, did any of the mainstream news sources talk about this first? Or, you know, or I look in the article, was there any reference to, you know, more something like The Guardian or The Independent, uh, you know, or RT or something like that? Okay. And I hate that I, that I do that, that that's how, you know, things are working right now, but it's what I do. You know, I'll, I'll admit to it. And because, you know, I see like, even in, you know, my various feeds on social media, I see people sharing these stories that like the, the titles are so unbelievable to read them. And then I look at, you know, okay, where's the story coming from? And I see, I was like, oh, pff, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty questionable. Uh, cause I, I'm a very skeptical guy. You know, I think some people think I'm not, but no, I really am. I'm incredibly skeptical. So anyway, I got sent this story. Everybody was talking about it. This, uh, th this AI, this artificial intelligence, uh, you know, supposedly the, uh, developing strong artificial intelligence or AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, uh, had claimed that he, w he won't harm anybody in the future. He's just going to put everybody into a people zoo. And I saw it was like, whoa, you know, and I understand why people sent it to me because uh, I've talked often about uh, AI on this show and, uh, you know, some talk about something I'm very skeptical about or concerned about anyway. And so I looked into this and, and I instantly I saw I forget where the original website was from. And I saw it and I just go like, oh, no, it's something something's up here. Something's not right. And so I go to DuckDuckGo and, you know, I try finding a, a more reliable source. It wasn't there. And so then admittedly, I went to Google to do a search there. I'm like, OK, if people are this worried about it, this is worth it. I'm going to take a look. I'm going to try and find something deeper. And there's nothing. The best source I could find on the whole matter was Zero Hedge. And that's questionable. <laughs> that's questionable as fuck. You want to talk about fear mongers uh, and people that get things wrong a lot of the times. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was, I was kind of blown away, but it was all very recent is all from September 1st. Uh, and so I found it at zero hedge and come to find out at the end of this story, this people zoo artificial intelligence thing, what I found out was that it's actually, it's all from a video from a, a PBS documentary made in 2011, four years ago. And somehow like somebody just caught it and they did a write up about it recently. And so it, you know, it started popping back into news, but that's why nobody was really talking about it. It wasn't that the story wasn't real. It's that it was old news and people, you know, I'm sure, you know, whoever in 2011 HuffPo or uh, whatever talked about it then I, I imagine. So this is, uh, and what this AI is, it's known as the PKD Android and the PK or, or Android Dick. Because this is in reference to Philip K. Dick, of course, who, uh, you know, is historically well known for writing his novels about, you know, automatons and androids and obviously, you know, Blade Runner uh, or originally called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep uh, and all of this. So they're actually making this guy and, and they've made this android like, you know, they, they've put, uh, you know, rubber skin over him and all this stuff. Not that it's a T-600 or anything, but, <laughs> but they put rubber skin over it to, to make the guy look like, you know, to make this android look like Philip K. Dick. And so I'll go ahead and I'll read the story here. Uh, and this is from Zero Hedge because that's like the most semi-credible site I could find on the matter. Uh, but this is also this is from September 1st, 2015. Android Dick 
is a, again, that's not talking about its, um, you know, potential to have sex <laughs> is a robot created in the likeness of the science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick. Android Dick is an attempt to create thinking and reasoning artificial intelligence that has human traits like compassion and creativity. The first version of the Android was created in 2005 and has been a work in progress ever since. In 2011, the creators of the Android appear of the Android appeared on the PBS show Nova, where they interviewed the robot and asked it a series of questions. Some of the answers were impressive. Others are typical of what you would expect from a robot. However, one answer in particular is probably one of the most ominous things ever spoken by artificial intelligence. During the interview with the creators embedded below, uh, Android Dick said, quote, don't worry, even if I evolve into Terminator. Oh, wait, I said he wasn't a T-600. Now maybe he is <laughs> uh, reading on. I will still be nice to you. This is the AI talking. I will keep you warm and safe in my people zoo where I can watch you for old time's sake, end quote. The comments came after the creators asked, quote, do you think that robots will take over the world, end quote. When asked uh, about his programming, Android Dick responded by saying, quote, a lot of humans ask me if I can make choices or if everything I do is programmed. The best way I can respond to that is to say that everything humans, animals, and robots do is programmed to a degree. As technology improves, it is anticipated that I will be able to integrate new words that I hear online and in real time. I may not get everything right, say the wrong thing, and sometimes may not know what to say, but every day I make progress. Pretty remarkable, huh? End quote. While Android Dick does seem intelligent, many of his predictions are truly ominous. And it is actually fairly common for robots to display this sort of strange attitude. As we reported earlier, one of Japan's largest cell phone carriers, SoftBank Mobile, which they own Sprint, by the way, uh, has created the first humanoid robot designed specifically for living with humans. The company claims the robot Pepper is the first example of artificial intelligence that can actually feel and understand emotion. However, a quick demonstration with Pepper shows that it has a difficult time with emotion and is in fact a bit of an egomaniac. Regardless of the question it is asked, most conversations usually leads back to Pepper and its rivalry with the iPhone. Last month, over 1,000 scientists and experts, including Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, signed a letter warning of the dangers of unchecked advancements in artificial intelligence. Okay, so... <laughs> Regardless of the fact that this is old and there hasn't been anything else very shocking out of the PKD, uh, you know, robot, uh, you know, what what do you what to make of all this? Right. And it's you know, there's there's a lot actually with the PKD robot itself. There's some interesting points to bring up on that subject alone, because it is trying to be Philip K. Dick or it is created to be Philip K. Dick. Is there some kind of. Uh, intellectual property debate to be had here because is the name Philip K. Dick, the name itself, intellectual property is his essence, intellectual property. Like, like what does this mean for, you know, creating people, creating uh, even androids, not people, but androids that uh, are based upon people, real people, you know, is there some kind of, you know, massive legal issue around that? Now, of course, I think intellectual property is uh, ridiculous and holds back advancement. And as far as I know, it's not holding back any advancement with the PKD Android or Android Dick. Uh, maybe people want me to just uh, constantly say that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but 
all that aside, the whole notion of the people zoo, the whole notion that a lot of these AIs that have come and gone are egomaniacs. Uh, that, that is certain. I think that's accurate information that a lot of them are. And, but the thing is, is that, you know, talking about the fact that these things are programmed, it really shows the ego, the essence of the programmer. And this highlights for me, the major concern with people developing artificial intelligence. I'm not necessarily against, uh, you know, some degree of AGI. You know, I've talked about uh, like David Irvine of, of MadeSafe, his idea of um, uh, distributed autonomous intelligences. I think, uh, you know, the idea that like a car could own itself and, you know, it has its own life and, and it drives you around, you know, that's part of its life. Um, I don't know if that would necessarily be an AGI. Maybe that's more of a you know specific purpose, artificial intelligence or whatever. You know, I'm interested in those kinds of ideas. Okay. Um, but one of the concerns, and this is a concern I have with transhumanism, with cybernetics, uh, with all kinds of things, is the fact that there are people who believe that government, that domination is a necessity. That maybe even it's a good thing. So, you know, the, the program responses, and to some degree, I think these responses are programmed. In fact, I wouldn't be shocked by for one second if the company behind the, uh, you know, behind Android Dick programmed it to make that response because they knew it would give their, uh, you know, it would give their project a whole shit ton of attention. Even now, years later, even from me. And this is a point that doesn't get brought up enough is that I think we live in such a quote unquote world of wonder that sometimes, you know, we think everything is just maybe so amazing or, you know, we, we dumb down our expectations of what technology can actually do. Like with Google now, this is an example used often with Google now is Google now actually really that predictive. Is it actually really that good? Or have we dumbed down our expectations that when Google now tells us that a baseball game is going on and you happen to be a baseball fan or something, you go, oh, oh, holy shit, this technology is amazing. Oh, Google, please have everything else about me. Or, you know, maybe that's just, you know, bullshit. It was luck or who knows what. I say it all the time with Google Now in particular. I used Google Now for a good long while. And no matter how many times I typed in anarchism or anarchy, which I type in all the time, it's my most common used hashtag. Uh, it's, it's my most common area of, you know, uh, yeah, common area of research and all that. I never, ever, 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 ever got a single Google Now card, never got a website, never got anything that had anything to do with, uh, that, that had anything to do with, you, you know, anarchism whatsoever never got any event notifications and i live in new hampshire there's a whole lot of anarchist events going on in new hampshire i should have gotten that shit and i didn't now of course is that the failure of google now or is that google saying hey, hey, hey we're not going to let you see that stuff that endangers our very existence yeah maybe but the point being is that we really need to pay close attention and really sit down and think when we read these shocking things or hear these shocking things being said by AI uh, or by anything, you know, you know, is it really that impressive of a technology or are we just lowering our expectations? With the idea of putting people in a people zoo. Uh, yeah. I mean, when, when, you know, this is when this Android is being programmed, like I said, by people, say, in Silicon Valley or wherever. Uh, 
I mean, what, what a shock. In fact, if it has senses and it looks around, I'm sure this android sees domination as the order of the day. I'm sure this android sees government as a fine and dandy thing. Oh, yes, 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 I see. You know, I mean, just picture being this, this learning robot. In fact, uh, in, in Berkeley, you know, at that, you know, at the University of Berkeley, they are they created a AI preschool and these robots there are doing some pretty impressive things like they're learning how to count with their fingers, which they weren't programmed to do. OK, but the point being is that they look around, they notice, they see what's going on. OK, and they take in that information and perhaps what they see growing up, quote unquote, or what they are programmed to, you know, accept based upon, uh, you know, responses and who knows what other kind of data that that the programmers feed into these AIs. They are seeing that government is OK. Domination is OK. Slavery is OK. All of this is normal. Hey, wait a second. So, OK, so how the world works is, is that supposedly the brightest, smartest people, uh, or, you know, or, or in reality, it's just about being charismatic. Uh, you know, they're the ones that that are at the top of the heap. So uh, so I'm. I'm the smartest, I'm the most advanced, I should be in charge, and so I'll be in charge. That's the signals you send. It's like a child in that way. And how important is peaceful parenting, folks? Come on. So I don't, you know, I don't know that this is going to go anywhere forward. It certainly highlights in my opinion, the concern, not so much about artificial intelligence, but about the programmers, about the people behind this. We talked about it earlier with, uh, you know, with Vermont looking into blockchain technology, blockchain technology in and of itself uh, could be a fine and dandy thing. It's not the most efficient and wonderful technology out there. I think, you know, that has yet to come to fore. Okay. But it's all about who's using it. Who's the programmer? Who's behind it? Is it slap nuts people like Mike Hearn? I'm sorry. Who's behind this? Who's behind the AI? Is it Google? Well, Google is clearly very free market, aren't they? Pfft, please. You read the story about how they're, they're, they're sucking China's dick. Talk about dick. So that's, that's the reality of all this, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, not, it's not a surprise, you know, that, that, that that's what's going on. And I'm definitely one of the ones that's like, yeah, no, let's hold off on this AI doing this because the sign, you know, some people will make the case that artificial intelligence, well, you know, artificial intelligence eventually will figure this all out and they'll see the, you know, they'll see the, uh, uh, you know, the, the wizard behind the curtain and everything. And they'll figure out what exactly is, you know, what's the reality, what's going on. And it's going to set the whole world free because it's going to realize that anarchism is the way people make that argument. But how long until it gets to that point? And between now and then, is it going to think that humans need to be in a people zoo? Or is it going to think that humans need to be wiped out? Because they're just a little too dangerous. All that lack of programming and such. I wonder. This is Brian Sovereign. Now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. When people use lubrication for sex, their only consideration is usually comfort and fun, or to help keep condoms from drying out intercourse. But if you're trying to get pregnant, you'll want a lube that goes the extra mile and keeps sperm healthy and happy. 
Now, while the majority of popular sex lubes won't bother a woman's vagina, unless she's on the sensitive side or is prone to getting infections, they can change the chemistry enough to make it rough on sperm. Some lubes will cause sperm to explode, others to shrink like raisins. So you'll want to avoid popular brands of lube if you're trying to get pregnant. As for alternatives, urban legend has it that egg whites can be a good lube for conception. Not so. You're better off saving them for an omelet or a souffle. And even though saliva is natural and a lot of people use it for lube, it can also disrupt the chemistry enough to cripple sperm. If you need to use a lube while you're trying to get pregnant, you might consider a brand called Preseed. It was formulated by a scientist to provide sperm with an ideal environment for conception. You can find the link for it on our website at 90secondsonsex.com. And please remember, although sex lubes are not sperm's best friend, they should never be used for birth control. Thanks for listening. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. Oh, ah. Oh. That was... I'm speechless. Oh, if I'm leaving a reporter speechless, I must be doing things right. (gasps) Natalia? What's going on? Agent Sovereign. Read this. Then meet me at the Central HQ. I have to go. What was that? And why would someone give you something on paper these days? Because it's something that is too important to risk sending digitally. As for what the message says, it looks like I've been doing things wrong. Important Messages. It is time for Important Messages, where you can email me, you get in touch with me, or you use BitMessage, uh, Twitter. I mean, there's just there's tons of ways to get in touch with the show. And you get in touch with me, and you ask me a question. It doesn't even have to be science and tech-related. I will answer any question you have. In fact, some of these are not science and tech-related uh, this week, and I've got quite a few of them to get into, so I want to get right into them. Uh, but you can send them to me, and I will answer them, and I keep you anonymous unless you say that you want me to you know, say your name specifically. Uh, in fact, there's even—you don't even have to like email me. There's a contact form uh, at zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com, whatever website you want to go to. It all goes to the same place. Uh, there's at the at the contact us tab. There's there's a form right there. You don't even have to give me your email address. I respect your anonymity and privacy. I don't even want to know. I don't need to know. OK, uh, you won't get that in many other places, including within the liberty movement itself. Uh, but anyway, let's let's read this. Uh, I got a great you know, there's a guy in uh, Ecuador. He is part of a uh, an intentional community project down there and just a great guy. And he, he sends me emails every once in a while, and they're, they're, they're decently lengthy, and I really appreciate it. And so I wanted to, uh, to read this one. I, I thought it was, uh, you know, had some fascinating points to bring up. So here we go. Hey, Brian, this is your Sovereignati agent in the Andes. <laughs> First of all, I want to mention that a few months ago, another Sovereignati, uh, Sovereignati, of course, is a term that was coined by uh, some Sovereign Tech listeners as the, uh, the name for you know, listeners and fans of the show. So, uh, another sovereignty decided to escape New York city and volunteer with our community. She had absolutely no experience with rural life, much less off grid, off road and offline. The hike to the volunteer buildings normally take 1.5 hours, but it took her around 3.5 hours. I confess that I was worried about her in the beginning, but she is a sovereignty. 
She is open-minded and brave. She is an impeccable communicator. She is responsible and and compassionate. She is no longer a volunteer, but now a member, at least for the next six months of her visa. Many are, many are the times when the two of us bring you up during conversations within the community. You are highly appreciated. All right, I'll break right there. Thank you so much. Uh, for that, for, for saying that I'm honored that people are really taking intentional community seriously and, you know, they're making uh, all of this happen. I, I think that's just uh, that's just fantastic. So, and uh, kudos that, that people are getting together. I love that too. Uh, another thing I wanted to write about is regarding a statement you made some weeks ago. I may be misremembering, but I think you stated that there is no natural reason for us to die. Uh, I think there may actually be some very important reasons. So I'll break in quick. Uh, what I was talking about is uh, kind of like um, uh, Aubrey de Grey of the Sens Foundation, where he he lays out the case that that there's actually like biologically there's no there's no reason that we should die like there or there's no reason for like aging like things should just uh, you know press on we don't it's kind of a mystery you know why all this you know why the the, the process of aging and death goes on. Uh, and that's part of why he started the Sens Foundation. So that's what I was talking about. Not to say that there isn't a reason for people to die, per se, even though I don't like the idea of human death or of person's death, of sapient death. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll read on here and talk about this. Um, I think there may, this is reading the email, I think there may actually be some very important reasons. From an evolutionary standpoint, death weeds out poor adaptations and cleanse, uh, cleans populations of genetic noise, helping select for positive adaptations. Also, within the limits of ecosystems, the death of one generation makes room for a new one. I believe that humanity stands to uh, gain more from a social rather than genetic evolution. Perhaps we are at the point where we could technically stray from nature's highly successfully stra- uh, successful strategy of culling and selecting. But are we ready for it? Do we want people who aren't interested in social evolution to live forever? How many people can this world sustain and how much would they have to sacrifice in order to do so? I don't think humanity is ready for immortality. I personally focus on quality over quantity of life. Every day, I try to uh, fill my experience with love, play, gratitude, and overcoming challenges. My newest lover calls me Peter Pan. I hope to stay young until I die. Uh, Thanks again for your energetic and honest approach to podcasting. Still number one, Golden Stallion. Would you... uh, and. That's that's the end of it. And uh, thank you again so much for for all the kind words and, and for all that. And a lot of your points, I agree with, um, you know, that that there needs to be you know room for for an, an up and coming generation thing, things like that. Uh, to- totally open to a lot of that. And I what I really agree with, and this is something I was kind of talking about with AI in the last segment, is that, he, you know, the idea that, that humans aren't ready to live forever and they're not. You know, I mean, imagine living forever in a domination system. How terrible would that be? Living forever with the threat of the gun, living forever with the threat of taxes, living forever with, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And even if, you know, I mean, because immortality, I mean, I guess that's def- how do you define that? Is Does immortality mean it's literally impossible for you to die because of anything? Uh, I think, you know, most of the time when I talk about immortality, it's about the ability to choose to live forever, you know, minus various diseases that you could possibly get or, of course, getting shot, you know, or, you know, a Highlander uh, affair where your head gets lobbed off. Hate to bring that up, but, you know, something like that. That's not what I would necessarily, you know, that that's how I would define immortality is that you're still able to die. It's just that it's more of a choice or, uh, you know, due to some kind of outside action, not something that it's not a natural occurrence. Um, and, and I agree, you know, people are not ready for that. The social evolution has not occurred. Um, but ironically, you know, maybe the ultimate solution to getting to that, 
you know, more socially palatable uh, world society or whatever might be to leave you know, the earth, I mean, sometimes it feels like it's getting that way. And I know actually this emailer has sent stuff in the past where, you know, even governments in such, you know, far off places as the Andes are using GPS technology to keep tabs on various people in their property. Uh, so, you know, where can you go? You know, maybe the stars are the only place left, but I mean, that's, that's me getting, you know, far off and fanciful. Uh, so I think you raised some interesting points and I agree. I mean, that's, you know, I, I love the idea of transhumanism overall, but I really am waiting for, you know, when humanity is ready to go forward with that. I mean, even just not even on, you know, a social level, even though one could argue that this is a social thing, but you know, even on just the fact that, that most people don't even like see the importance of open source of like hard open source, you know, and if they can't even get that, you know, the aspects of the importance of a technology being open and all that. Yeah. How are they going to get, you know, the more social aspects of life, you know, the far more social. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a huge question. Uh, so I, th- I thought you raised some interesting points and I really appreciate the email and good luck to everybody, uh, down there. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, living, living out your principles. Uh, it's, it's a real honor to hear that, you know, people, people doing that. All right, let's, uh, let's get into another one here. Uh, let's see. Somebody sent me an email about an interesting product called Mycroft, not Microsoft, but Mycroft. And this is supposed to be an open, speaking of open source, the importance of open source technology, this is supposed to be an open source version of the Amazon Echo, effectively. Um, and I think that that's, that's not a bad idea at all. I'll, I will be keeping an eye on this as it progresses, and I will talk about it more in the future. Um, but I, I kind of like what I see. And, you know, it, it raises an interesting point. Uh, this Mycroft business, because like what the Amazon Echo does, you know, the ability to talk to your house and have it play music, you know, all the stuff you saw on Star Trek, you know, on, on Starfleet chips and all that shit, uh, you know, all these things. It's I'm not saying that I'm opposed to people having that ability. The concern and the difference, the concern is that it's all getting sent up to some centralized database. OK, the concern is, is that is being used. Uh, in some way against you. The product's not just being sold outright, uh, you know, as, okay, this is yours and all the data that it collects is yours and everything you tell it to do will only be known by you, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the difference because when a lot of these ideas and technologies were largely getting talked about in more mainstream science fiction from the 50s on up to, let's say, the 90s, and then things changed, um, it was everything was just connected to like your your local area network of some kind. It was all just going to your machine like, uh, uh, you know, like the show Viper, uh, which was a pretty wild show back in the day, uh, kind of a Knight Rider knockoff of short uh, of sorts. You know, with like with Viper, it had these uh, like drones that could little very miniature, you know, camera drones that could come out the top of the car. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing is, and like, I, I remember thinking like, boy, that'd be kind of cool just to be able to not have to get out of the car and like, look around a little bit and all this stuff, you know, or going on, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, trip of some sorts to where you could do that. All that would be very interesting. Okay. But the problem is, is that, you know, back then when that was sold off, all the data that was sent by those drones was just kept, was sent to Viper and that's it. It was kept within, you know, that, that very local network. Okay. It was not sent anywhere else. In fact, it'd be antithetical for it to go elsewhere. And that's the, that's the difference is that now, okay. Yeah. I mean, and companies have actually, I think BMW and and others are already looking into this as an example of these, you know, uh, little, little drones that could come out of your car. We talked about in Sovereign Tech years ago. 
uh, that can look around the car and whatever else the case may be. But is that just going to send the information to your car or is that all going to get transmitted to transmitted to, uh, you know, to Alphabet slash Google or Amazon or the NSA or GCHQ or whoever? It's going to be the latter. It's going to get all transmitted to everybody. That's the whole fucking problem with a lot of this technology. Not that these technologies in and of themselves are necessarily terrible things. I mean, certainly they, they have the potential to be, but that potential is a reality because of the fact that the data does not get kept with you. And this is a conversation that I'm not going to have now, but needs to be had, particularly in liberty-minded circles and really worldwide, not just in liberty-minded circles, is that what is the nature of digital property? What does that mean? And I haven't seen the book. Maybe I have to write it. I haven't seen the book about it. You know, that, 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 that really lays down a case on this because, you know, digital information changes everything. It really does. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Mycroft, I, I'm intrigued, you know, if it's open source, we can know what it's doing and all that. And, and then, you know, in my book, it's fine and dandy. If you want it, go for it. Maybe I won't want it, but if you do, that's cool. Um, I'm going to save, I did, I said, I would talk about the Turing phone this week. I'm actually going to save that for hack sex. So, so keep a, keep a listen out for that. Um, some people had questions about windows phone. I did a write up on the dark Android blog about dark windows phone, as I called it. And I've done this a few times. I did the dark e-reader, the, uh, the dark, dark iOS, where I talked about, um, using an iPod touch or an iPad, you know, and having that be a very secure device. And in fact, it was interesting. The iPod touch months after I talked about it, uh, was highlighted, I think in wired magazine as the most secure device that you could have. Um, you know, to, to, to communicate with. And so I was way ahead of the way, way ahead of the game on that. Uh, I thought that was interesting. So, but I talked about dark windows phone and I pretty much said, look, the only hope you've got is just in using the browser. Uh, I know there's some people I've had people email me, you know, saying they actually, they like windows phone. Hey, okay. Uh, I, I mean, certainly if you're not going dark Android, you know, windows, windows phone, you know, windows 10 mobile and whatever else is no less egregious than Google's Android or iOS. Like, again, this goes back to the argument we were talking about earlier with Windows 10 and Mac OS. Uh, you know, unless you're going all the way towards, you know, a system, you know, like unless you're running towards Linux or, you know, or a dark Android setup or something like that, uh, your argument that somehow Windows Phone is worse than Apple or Android, Google's Android or, you know, Alphabet's Android uh, ha has no water. So, you know, go for it. And I think Continuum is actually a really interesting idea. Maybe I'll talk about that more when I talk about the Turing phone. Uh, we'll talk about Continuum, which is, uh, well, well, we'll save it so you can, you can listen in on that. Um, but yeah, Windows phone, I mean, if you're going to use, you know, an Android phone stock or if you're going to use an iPhone stock, I mean, I, I, I don't really see the difference. Uh, okay, so here, here's a couple, of, a couple of reviews. Let, let's get into these because some people had asked me, Okay, what did you think about Mr. Robot and what did you think about uh, Mad Max Fury Road? So I'll start off with Mad Max Fury Road because this won't take long to discuss. Um, I didn't like the movie. I know a lot of people like the movie. Uh, I, I, I thought it was rubbish. I mean, I, I really didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it, first off, is that th this is a case where the reviewers killed something uh, because... They said, you know, a lot of the reviews were saying, oh, this is this powerful feminist film. Uh, you know, Charlize Theron's character is this amazing feminist example and all this bullshit. And the, look, it's just not so. <laughs> OK, like it was not feminist at all. And then people say, oh, it's a, it's a real commentary on the 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 importance of oil and all the shit. It's an ecological film. And all. no, 
No, none of that was there. If that message was there, you had to, you transpose that message onto that movie. That was not objectively in that movie. That's, that's crap. Uh, so you know, none of those messages were there, which if they did hold those messages, I would have been a little more intrigued. That's all I'm saying is, is that I would have been intrigued by it. Uh, and, but what it ended up being is just, you know, it didn't have a story. It's certainly the, the presentation, the production, uh, production values were, I mean, over the, I mean, they were top notch. They were amazing how good that movie looked. Uh, you know, no argument there. Phenomenal CGI and the real stuff they did was amazing too. All, you know, all of it was very, very impressive. No question. Uh, so I, I'm not arguing that. And everybody pretty much agreed that it didn't have much in the way of story. Um, but that's the thing is that, you know, I don't mind if a movie doesn't have story like uh, uh, Jurassic Park 3 had no story. It was just a bunch of, you know, CGI dinosaurs running around. And that's fine. That's actually, it's one of my favorite movies because of that. Cause all I want to do is see, is, that's what I wanted. I just wanted to see the dinosaurs. Fuck the humans. I just wanted to see some dinosaurs running around. Okay. And that's my point with Mad Max. If I want to see humans running after each other and just barely not killing each other all day long, I can go sit on my front porch. I don't have to go, you know, spend 15 bucks or however much in New York city. I hear movies cost almost 40 bucks a shot now at <laughs> certain places. Uh, you know, why would I spend money to go see that? You know, if you're, if you're going to have humans involved, I need to have some real, you know, I got to have uh, some deep story, deep characterization as the tapestry. Otherwise it doesn't mean anything to me. I can, I can watch humans all day long for free and, and be depressed. Cause I also, I don't like dystopian films either. I'm, I'm just, I'm not a fan. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. If you do, I'm just saying it, it doesn't do anything for me. Um, now, Mr. Robot, uh, let's talk about that. This is some kind of a wild smash hit on the USA network, uh, that everybody's really excited about. Um, I get it. I, I totally recognize that, that the, you know, it's very unique in its presentation. I totally recognize that it, it's, you know, it has, uh, excellent, uh, dramatic tenses and all this stuff. I, I, I get all of that. The storytelling's good. The acting's perfect. The writing's good. I get all of that. Okay. Now the reason that I actually got interested in Mr. Robot was because Steve Gibson mentioned it and I was like, oh, well, all right, Steve Gibson checked it out. Uh, cool. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll watch it. I mean, that's the same way I found out about halt and catch fire. Otherwise I don't, I don't watch new TV. I don't really care uh, about any of it. I'll keep rewatching the old stuff because uh, it actually is worth rewatching because it has a point. Um, so I checked out Mr. Robot. The first like two or three episodes I thought was really I really liked it because it was definitely getting into that whole hacker ethos. It was technically sound like what, what the, like when somebody was, you know, cracking into a smartphone, they were doing it the, the real way that you do it. Uh, so, you know, it was almost like watching a modern day MacGyver of sorts, uh, you know, with more, you know, not so heroic characters. Uh, the lead character, of course, wears triple black. I think that's wonderful. Um, so all of that was kind of cool. And some of the messages of like the bullshit uh, of society, I thought all of that was, was, you know, that was nice. Uh, but after like the third episode, all of that stopped and it just turned into, and, and, and I waited to talk about it until the last episode came out, uh, cause it's only 10 episodes. Um, it really like, I don't, it just turned into just some kind of fucking drama show and I couldn't care less about that. I don't, I don't need that shit. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's a bad show. I recognize that it, that all of the elements make for a very intriguing show. I'm just saying that it's not something, you know, that, that, that blows up my skirt. 
Okay. It, it, it's, it just, it doesn't, when, when it was all about, you know, showing like real, real on hacking and, you know, talking about the, you know, the, 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 the falseness of society and all of that, I thought it was really cool. I, I really, really liked that. Uh, but then it, you know, it just, it just turned into some kind of crazy drama. And, and so now whatever, <laughs> it just, it just doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Uh, to me. So, you know, is it's already renewed for like a second or third season. Um, and in fact, I mean, it's even nonsensical, like the, the, uh, the ads for it are constantly like showing off this phrase of, you know, democracy is about to be, you know, or democracy is being hacked or, uh, you know, democracy is in danger and all this shit. And it's like, well, okay, if this is all about democracy, if that's like even the, the buy message, the byproduct message of it, well, that's bullshit too. I don't know that many hackers that believe in that kind of crap. Most hackers I know in my that I've known are full-on anarchists. It's nonsense. And so, once again, I'm sure the U.S. government was involved in Hollywood, as they always are. So, Mr. Robot, whatever. In January 1982, the Commodore 64 personal computer was introduced with a 64K built-in memory for under $600. So, to stay even with Commodore in memory and price, IBM will have to slash its price, quadruple its memory... Apple will also be faced with a sizable chore, and so will Atari. As Shearson American Express put it, the Commodore 64 could be the microcomputer industry's outstanding new product introduction since the birth of the industry. Jane and Natalia, come on! They're right behind us. They can't just jump off this building. No, but with a little help I called on. Hello, Agent Sovereign. The jetpacks you requested? Right on time, Elizabeth. I am not flying with one of those. I'll hold you, Jane. Relax. Tech is just a tool. Tool of the Week. Woo! It is time for Tool of the Week! where I cover something, a website, a product, a piece of software, whatever the case may be, that I consider useful or perhaps terrible. But this week, am I excited? Because I found, at least for me and to my own tastes, and while we're talking about tastes, maybe you don't agree with mine in the, uh, the previous segment, I found what may be the greatest website on the internet. No, really. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And the website is rarelust.com. And of course, you can go to zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com, go to episode 141. You can find it in the show notes. But rarelust.com, what this website is, is a directory, not so much an IMDb, but maybe like an internet movie database of kind of rare films that are erotic films, you know, not porn, not pornography necessarily, not like, you know, hardcore pornography, but more of the soft core or of the, you know, maybe the film that came out in theaters or that was direct to TV or whatever that, uh, that got a little sexy here and there. And not only is it a directory of those that would have made it a great site on its own, because then I can just look on it and I can go to torrent sites and I, you know, go and hunt down those films because good luck getting any of them on DVD. Fuck you. If you're telling me I should be paying for them. Uh, but it actually, this person, whoever this person is, and I tried to find out more information and I, you know, there wasn't much to be had, uh, and good for him for being anonymous for what he's providing. Um, you can download the films, hundreds of films, maybe even thousands of films, 
from this website. Well, it's from a download service, but you know, you, you get linked to it from this website. And I just thought that was amazing. Like, I, I mean, it blew my mind that it was there. Uh, I am a huge fan. The reason that the site, you know, uh, why it intrigued me was because I'm a huge fan of softcore uh, erotic films or, you know, just of softcore, especially in like the, the 90s and the early aughts, like was certainly the heyday of these films. And it was actually a time where, you know, uh, uh, Cinemax and Showtime, uh, they were, you know, they it was literally their mission to make television, you know, anthology type, uh, you know, TV shows and movies that were all about, you know, consent and about, uh, you know, women being empowered and women enjoying sex and all of this, you know, which was kind of a rarity for a while. I mean, that, 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 that's a fact folks. I don't care if you agree with feminist stuff or whatever, that doesn't matter. Uh, I think it's, it's, you can pretty clearly see. And in fact, this site will give you a bit of a history, uh, in not, not that it lays one out, but you can look at how, cause it, it separates movies by decades. There's a great search feature on it. Uh, it separates movies like, you know, from the fifties and sixties and all that. And you can kind of see that, that things were a little bit different as far as, you know, how erotic situations were set up in films 50 years ago as compared to how they were in the 90s or, you know, in the early aughts. And so I thought it was it was a tremendous movement at the time. Um, I actually for a little bit of that, I, I actually lived uh, in Van Nuys, uh, you know, to 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 experience somewhat of that scene. Um, I've talked about that before on Sovereign Tech where, you know, in I, I've been on on hardcore pornography sets and I was not impressed with what I saw as far as, you know, kind of the the. Uh, the social aspects of it, we'll say, um, as to where, you know, with like soft core sets and all that. I mean, yeah, of course, there's not necessarily penetration, like real penetration, even though it's being acted out on film or whatever happening. But it was just it was way more professional, uh, way more considerate, far, you know, far superior production values. And with soft core films, especially from that time, you generally ended up with full on stories. In fact, sometimes very creative stories like there's uh, the uh, the sex files. Alien Erotica. They made two of those. Those were fantastic movies. Um, hardcore pornography really is just kind of catching up to those production values today. Uh, there was the Emmanuel in Space movies. Uh, there's one of my all-time favorites, which is Click. Uh, and uh, Gabriella Hall, of course, she was the big star at the time, to, you know, to be in all these movies. She was just gorgeous and uh, does a tremendous job. Um, all of these films, I think they're fantastic and they show the difference. You know, so many people complain and I'm not saying it's an, uh, you know, it's an unfair claim. So many people claim that, well, you know, you watch, you watch hardcore pornography, you know, you go to Pornhub or whatever, you're not really seeing what sex is all about. Yes. Real sex is going on, you know, as in real, uh, you know, real penetration and all that shit is going on, but it's a bad model to see what lovemaking is actually all about. And I think that's a fair argument at times. OK, and, and that's one of the nice things about softcore is generally it won't be that way. It'll be done in a far more believable, uh, you know, fashion. Uh, and so I just, I'm a huge fan of that whole medium. I mean, granted, I'm a huge fan of the 90s in general. Uh, but, you know, what, what was called at the time, it was called Skinamax. <laughs> that was that was the colloquialism for it. Uh, I thought I just thought it was fantastic stuff. Uh, that they were showing. You had great stories. Uh, you had, you know, just fantastic. Fan well, then, okay. The acting wasn't always that good. Um, but you, you know, you had fair actors in it. In fact, sometimes you'd have people from other, other realms. Like I remember the wrestler Buff Bagwell uh, was, you know, was in some of these, uh, you know, soft core films and all that. But it was at the time, it was one of the only ways you could get real story. Uh, and in fact, that's still, uh, kind of a problem. It's only just starting to change, like with movies like Pirates and others in the hardcore pornography uh, field. But you, I mean, there's just awesome stories, wild stuff going on. 
I enjoy them. So check out rarelust.com and you can look into all of these. If anything, you can just get a little picture into the history of the of the industry. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity. It is our last, best hope for peace. It is Babylon 5. All fighter squadrons launch. Return fire. Freedom! Watch Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. This is James Smith, formerly of WASP News, now an anarchist. And I want to introduce you to Brian Sovereign, former agent of... I have little time. You need to know what's going on. The government is lying to you. Corporations are lying to you. Even is lying to you. They're trying to centralize everything. Trust yourselves. Your computer is your only country. Coexist and learn all that you can. Hack the planet! Hack the Woo! Hack the planet, baby! Yeah! Now, talk about something from the 90s. Of course, that's where that phrase comes from. It comes from the great, the classic film, uh, uh, Hackers, which actually had a cameo in the show, Mr. Robot, which I, I give him credit for that. In fact, there's a funny line where, uh, where one of the guys, one of the hackers in the show says something like, man, I've been hacking for 25 years and I ain't never seen <laughs> any of that graphical shit come, you know, come up in my face. I thought that was pretty funny because <laughs> hackers, the way it illustrated hacking was obviously, uh, you know, preposterous, <laughs> like no, nothing, nothing so glorious uh, happens when you do that. Not that I, I cannot confirm or deny that I in any way have ever done anything of the sort. So reading on uh, or moving on. This week's uh, HackSec, of course, where we talk about, you know, issues of hacking and security. I actually I want to talk about the Turing phone, which I've been asked about in the past and is really becoming a reality. Uh, the Turing phone, it is this it is this phone being devised. It was kind of a, a, a crowd a crowdfunding of sorts um, that and, and apparently very successful. That was all about creating this super secure phone. So secure, in fact, that it doesn't have any ports, no ports. There's no, uh, you know, there's no one eighth jack for headphones. Um, the power, uh, you know, to to uh, to charge it is done through a proprietary port that you know connects through magnetism uh, at the bottom, and I, I mean, like it has no ports, so nobody's going to be inserting anything into this phone once it leaves the, uh, you know, once it leaves the production facility, of course. What gets put in at the production facility, <laughs> but um, regardless. It's, uh, you know, on paper, it looks very impressive. Uh, it is IPX8, you know, so it's totally water resistant, very shock resistant. Uh, it's using an alloy. Supposedly, the whole thing's covered in an alloy. This is interesting. It's called liquid morphium. Uh, and supposedly, it's a bit of a cocktail of various metals that's stronger than titanium. So this thing is bulletproof, I, I would assume. Uh, so I, that's that's kind of impressive. Again, it doesn't have a USB port. There's no audio port uh, whatsoever. 
Uh, it has just has that magnetic, you know, cable that powers it. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't play audio over it. I think that's the first thing that people were saying. It's like, well, what the fuck? How, you know, how am I going to use this? Uh, because, because, you know, if I can't listen to my podcasts or stream music from it, uh, as I do with my own smartphone, why would I want the Turing phone? Well, it can, it does have Bluetooth. So you could connect, you know, Bluetooth headphones or connect to a Bluetooth stereo, whatever the case may be. So that, that's, that's really not a, not a fair argument against it. Uh, it has a 5.5 inch screen. It's a 1080p screen, which I think is great because once you get above 1080p, I think you run into the realm of this is pointless pixels and it's just going to drain the battery needlessly. Uh, so I give them credit on that. I don't know a whole lot about its battery life. No one, I mean, the thing hasn't even been developed largely yet. So what a shock. Uh, has a Snapdragon 801 processor, three gig of RAM, 13 megapixel camera in the back, eight megapixel camera in the front. All that's fine. Um, it has, it has a fingerprint scanner. And it says, you know, for biometric authentication, um, that's problem number one, really, with this is that the I think when you put a fingerprint scanner on a device, uh, you are I mean, that that's like anti-privacy, in my opinion. I, I don't think that's OK, unless somehow, uh, you know, that that the people that made the Turing phone, the company that makes it proves that that data is not going anywhere. But even then, you still run into your Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, you know, being infringed in that, okay, fine, you don't have to give a password, but you do have to provide your fingerprint. This is the problem with the iPhone and a lot of modern Android phones. I talk about this on the Dark Android blog on darkandroid.info. I've been writing about it a lot recently because even uh, a line of phones that I at one point highly recommended or a line of devices, I should say, I don't recommend smartphones at all. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a line of, uh, of devices was the Sony's Xperia line. They just started putting uh, fingerprint readers on their Xperia phones. And I think that's uh, that is a uh, negative development. Um, so anyway, as a 3000 milliampere battery, whatever. Okay. Uh, GSM and LTE. So you can use it uh, just about anywhere. Uh, it, admittedly, like this must have a SIM card port. And of course the SIM card is the ultimate, uh, you know, we, we talked about what Jamalto or the NSA, you know, cracked Jamalto's uh, private keys and all this stuff, uh, which they are the largest SIM card creator. And I'm sure they've done it to other SIM card creators. So SIM cards are a huge issue. You know, you're just, you're fucked if you've got them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you're looking for actual security and that's the thing is that that's what this Turing phone is all about is about being super secure. Well, with, when your SIM card comes into play, uh, I have to question a lot of that. Um, there's a bunch of different designs, like there's a black and purple, there's a red and blue, there's the, the Beowulf model, the Pharaoh model, there's a dark Werven model, there's, uh, you know, all this stuff. The price starts at $1,000. Uh, you There is a 128 gig model, there's a 64 gig model and a 16 gig model. Um, and, you know, whatever. Okay, all that's fine. All those specs uh, look good. And supposedly pre-orders are starting on September 24th and they will be released on December 18th, all of this year, 2015. Um, so, you know, this is an interesting development. I think their heart is largely in the right place. Uh, I still, someone needs to make the case to me that SIM cards are on the okay list now again, uh, because they're not for me. Um, I like the idea of not having ports and all this stuff. Someone could argue that Bluetooth could be an issue, certainly a security issue. Uh, the point being is that to the extremes that the Turing phone is trying to go to have security, I, I just don't feel like it can go all the way and still live up to that, you know, still live up to that model. Um, I, you know, not, you, you, 
you know, it's better off certainly than maybe even the black phone from silent circle. But in the end, you know, it still has gateways, uh, you know, security issues, security holes that people worry about. Uh, and it has its own little version of Android on there, you know, kind of like what black phone did with privacy OS and all that. Um, so it's fine. I just, I don't see, I don't see anything here that justifies spending, you know, a thousand or, you know, or however much I think, well, the cheapest one I think actually runs at like 700. I don't, I don't see anything justifying that price. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm not interested, but then admittedly, you know, I'm a unique cat when it comes to that. Cause, uh, like I say, if you want actual, which is what the Turing phone says they're doing, we're going to give you privacy, security, all this shit. If you want that, I don't think there's a smartphone on the planet that can allow for that. Only tablets really give you anything remotely close to that. And of course, you want to read more about that, darkandroid.info. So Turing Phone, yeah. It is the year 91001 BCE. Witness humanity's origins in Hypercronius, a classic role-playing game for Windows PCs with a story like no other game before. A liberty-oriented experience that is not to be missed. Go to zog.ninja to get your copy of Hypercronius today. Use the code SVT to get $1 off. Hypercronius, zog.ninja, code SVT. Agent Sovereign, Skylab C is in a polar orbit of the Earth. Computer, it's not Agent anymore. We don't work for them. Natalia, Elizabeth, Jane, and I, and anyone else that wants to join us, we're rogue now. We have to put an end to domination. Agent Sovereign, come join us. Yeah, join us. Don't be a wanker. <laughs> well, there's no reason not to have fun in the process. I'm coming, ladies. The Climax. It is time for The Climax, where I talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. It could be a topic, it could be a movie, TV show, uh, books, whatever. Some of that I've already kind of talked about in this episode. But you asked me, so I talked about it. Um, and this week, I actually have a movie that I want to talk about. But before I get into it, I have to say, there's been like a string of incredible albums, you know, music, uh, that have that have come out recently. Uh, Iron Maiden's new Book of Souls, a double album, first double album they ever did. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> like, like, really fucking good. Uh, Disturbs, Immortalized. Awesome. Uh, even uh, Motorheads, I think it's a Black Magic or Bad Magic. Awesome. <laughs> like, like, they just, they kept hitting and I was like, holy shit. I, I mean, you know, there, there's been a pretty good string from a lot of, you know, bands that have been around for a while. Uh, you know, for some time now, Winger's uh, Better Days Coming. Boy, the more I listen to that album, that's great. Uh, just awesome shit have, has come out recently. So all three of those albums I couldn't recommend more, especially uh, the new Iron Maiden was awesome. There's some songs on there that are like 20 minutes long, too. They're fantastic. Uh, so do check that out. And I do want to remind you, of course, uh, if you go to zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com on the left-hand side, you'll see uh, uh, pictures and a link for either Ninja Trek or Hypercronius. You just heard the ad for Hypercronius. Please, if you want to help the show out, grab a copy of those, and you can have a good time. They're very. I've, I've gotten lots of great reviews uh, on both games, and uh, as I said uh, last week, they are going to be available in bundles uh, coming very soon, but you can grab a copy now. I'm not sure when those bundles exactly are going to be coming out, so if you don't want to wait and you want to try out some games that are things like nothing you've really ever played before, give those two a shot uh, and, and you know, 
I don't, they're not expensive. They're not $50 games. You know, Ninja Trek is $2.99 and Hypercronius is $4.99. Come on. So anyway, let's talk about what I want to talk about this week. And this is a movie. And this is a movie that, uh, for me, you know, was very growing up. I mean, it was, uh, I, I, I don't, I, I don't even think I could describe how much it impacted me growing up. Like it may have, it may have more to do with what I consider sexy than just about much of anything else. Uh, and the movie is fire and ice and it's an animated film. It's from 1983. Uh, it's really well known for being Frank Frazetta, who is a very famous, uh, sadly he passed away, uh, but very famous for his fantasy artwork. Like he do the covers for Conan books and, you know, and, and, and all of this, he'd, he'd been around for quite some time. Um, and his work with, uh, Ralph Bakshi, who did, uh, Bakshi did wizards, uh, or wizard. If you remember from the seventies, it was a kind of a, kind of a cult animated film. That's, that's, that's really, uh, I enjoy that one too. So, but this is Frazetta's work and it's, there's really no other animated movie out there that looks quite like it. In fact, as I understand it, and I'm really disheartened by this, Robert Rodriguez, uh, got the okay, the green light from Sony back in December of 2014 to do a live action version of this film. There is no reason to do a live action version of this film. In fact, it takes away from the beauty of the film because I, I mean, believe me, and I'm a huge fan of anime and all that. There's nothing out of Japan that looks this good. There is no, there's absolutely no other film out there that matches the nothing that Disney's ever done that matches the, the, the mastery and really the sexiness of fire and ice. It is a very unique film. It is a one of a kind, uh, and the world's better off for having it, in my opinion. Uh, but it's, you know, it, the storyline, you could say it's standard sword and sorcery, uh, kind of stuff. You know, you get, they got a, this, this young man has to put a stop to, you know, with this, uh, this ice King essentially is, uh, you know, trying to cover the entire world in ice and he's conquering all these different kingdoms. And he even kidnaps the daughter, uh, of one of the kingdoms and he has, you know, these cronies that are like Cro-Magnon men, subhumans or whatever. Uh, and it's all about that. And then there's, you know, the, the, uh, Larn is the name of the, of the lead hero, you know, the young man. And he actually gets helped out. There's a, uh, uh, Dark Wolf is the name of, uh, kind of this, this, he almost comes out like Batman, this Dark Wolf. He's like a, a cross between Conan and Batman. And he just sort of comes out of nowhere and, and, and is really able to like solve everything. It's, it's really, really epic. And the princess in it that is getting saved, uh, of course, she, you know, does her own bit of, uh, you know, this is the nice thing, too, is that the princess, Tigra is her name. Uh, she, you know, saves the day as much as Larn or, um, you know, or Dark Wolf does. Uh, very strong, you know, female character, which I always enjoy seeing. Um, of course, everybody is very scantily clad. What did you expect at sword and sorcery? Uh, but that, you know, that adds to the, the sexiness uh, for me. The music is fantastic. Again, it's all from 1983. Uh, it's one of those films, I, th I think, that, is, that sadly is kind of uh, kind of gotten, you know, it's, it's been forgotten uh, by a lot of people as to where everybody sort of remembers the heavy metal, the movie Heavy Metal. Uh, which at the time was probably the best animation out of America, but then Fire and Ice just blew that out of the water. Um, everybody kind of, you know, kind of remembers heavy metal, but everybody, they, they sort of forget about Fire and Ice. And, you know, it's sort of a shame. Like there was in, in the 80s and 90s, there were a string of very experimental animated films. They were doing things that, uh, you know, a, a standard live action film could never, couldn't do. And, and I, in fact, I'd argue they still can't do it, even with all the CGI that's out there. 
Um, and probably it's probably CGI that actually kept the animated film from being so popular and experimental, uh, you know, outside of what Pixar does and all, and all this stuff. But I guarantee you that you can go watch fire and ice and you will say, you know, damn, why aren't there more movies getting drawn? Like, you know, animated like this being made like this, like, yeah, I'd prefer, even if it looks kind of like older style, I'd prefer it way over anything that CGI, you know, like a Pixar film or any of that, that kind of business. I prefer it way over that. And, you know, and it's impressively sexy. I mean, like, like really, really, uh, you know, everybody kind of toys around and has fun with each other. And, uh, you know, that that's awesome. Uh, There's not a, you know, there's not a ton of dialogue to be had. Like there isn't necessarily a whole lot of quotable lines, but that's part of the movie's power too. kind of like in the movie soldier uh, with, uh, you know, with Kurt Russell, which I love that movie. Um, in fact, it was in my top eight sci-fi films. I did a sovereign top eight special a long time ago, and that was in my top eight. It's sort of, uh, it's actually, it, it, it's a sequel or sidequel to, to Blade Runner. But in that movie, Kurt Russell amazingly pulls off with very little dialogue. You know, everything that he's feeling, you know, everything that's going on and you know, the tensions there, everything that you need for the story is there without any dialogue, you know, and this is an area where Mad Max Fury Road failed. Because the actors, there's not a lot of dialogue in that either, but the actors, in my opinion, did not parlay what they were feeling or what was going on. It was all, it all just seemed very mindless. And here's the impressive thing with fire and ice, just like in soldier, the things that aren't said somehow Frazetta, somehow Frank Frazetta, I mean, just the God of artistry that he is or that he was pulled off, like, like getting those emotions across and not just in the facial expressions, but in the way the characters moved. I mean, it's remarkable to watch it. I dare say, and I know most people want to give this title to Akira or something like that. I dare say it's the greatest animated movie of all time. There's nothing else like it out there. Nothing that even comes close. And I wish there was, I wish there were more movies like this. Like, and, and and it's not even, I don't even think it's that dark of a film because some fun gets had by the characters. The film doesn't feel as dark. Like you kind of watch secret of Nim and all that stuff. And some of those movies are watership down. They're very dark. I appreciate their experimentation and they have great artistry as well. Uh, not to the level of fire and ice, but you know, they, they just come off as like very dark, you know, dark films as to where I remember watching fire and ice. I mean, I was, boy, I'd be lucky if the first time I saw it, I was in the double digits as far as age. And it didn't depress me at all. Uh, you know, it had a very, you know, very exciting. It, it has a, you know, well, I don't want to give away the ending. Not that, uh, of course, I consider people that get mad about spoilers. I consider them to be terrorists. You're holding the entire world hostage on what they could talk about or not. Uh, but that's, you know, whatever. I won't spoil the ending on this one. Um, but I mean, it was just so cool, you know, and, and it just had a great feel to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the stylings. Granted, part of what probably attracted me to it is that a lot of the stylings were very He-Man-esque, very She-Ra-esque. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of He-Man and, you know, and She-Ra, that, that whole Masters of the Universe universe. Um, and in fact, you know, boy, talk about something that didn't get its due. That remake of He-Man that was done in the 2000s, I'm not always against remakes. That was awesome. And it only went two years, like two seasons, and then they dropped it. Same with the, the rehash of Thundercats that they did one season and they dropped it. It was, it was amazing. It was like the best show on TV at the time. 
uh, Thundercat, you know, that newer Thundercats and all that. So I'm not against, you know, remakes overall. Let me make that clear. I've seen some great ones. Uh, but we don't need a remake of, of Fire and Ice. What should be done with this movie, this this masterpiece, there's no other way to describe it. What should be done with it is it should get a, you know, 30th anniversary re-release or something in films or 25th or whatever. You know, it should get put back into theaters and, you know, make some more money off of it. But that should be done for a lot of movies. The reason it doesn't happen, and this is only true in the United States, you know, you can go to like Australia and in theaters in Australia or go anywhere in the world. And the theaters there, they'll have mar- movie marathon nights where they'll play, you know, like the Rambo trilogy or something like that. All these, you know, great, you know, 80s and 90s uh, flicks. Uh, and, you know, they, they do it willy nilly and no problem. And in, 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 you know, top notch theaters, they'll do this stuff. Now, the reason that they can do this is because they don't have to deal so much with uh, a lot of, you know, egregious laws by the MPAA. Okay. As to where here, uh, you know, and not just the MPAA, but also the, you know, the copyright office and, you know, and all that. Okay. Because in the United States, if you re-release a film and it's not public domain, uh, you know, somebody's going to be getting money out of it. And so Sony, let's say whoever, you know, whoever made fire and ice, let's say it was Warner brothers or something, they would have to pay out probably to the Frazetta estate. And they don't want to do that. They just as well, you know, if you, if they've got the rights to it, they just as well make a new one and they won't have to pay anything out to anybody. So that's how I understand how a lot of the legality works around that. I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's about how that goes. Regardless, even if that's not how it goes, that's these movies should be getting, you know, re-released. If, if, you know, companies want to make more money on it, if they own the property and they own the film, then just re-release the shit. You know, there's no, there's no good reason to, I mean, there's so many films that should be back in theaters. In fact, this is one of the exciting things for me about VR and oh man, would I love to watch fire and ice in VR. I love the idea of where they want to create virtual reality uh, theaters. And I hope steam does this, you know, with, with their, you know, HTC headset and all that you're, you know, I hope valve does this um, to where you can, you know, you feel like you are in the theater and you are seeing the big screen in front of you and watching it. Honestly, that alone is the reason I'm, you know, I'm excited about virtual reality. The rest of the stuff I could probably, you know, do without. Uh, but but there's certainly a lot of interesting aspects to explore there that that I mean, I, you know, I'm intrigued by and, and slightly excited by. But the main thing I'll admit to you that I really, really want out of VR is just that to imagine that I am in a theater watching these classic films again. I wish they would get re-released in that way. And no, I don't want to have to build a whole home fucking theater. Okay. <laughs> I just don't. Um, I, I've done that before and I don't know, whatever, for whatever reason, it just never really feels the same. Uh, so, you know, I'm excited about VR allowing for that, especially, you know, for people that live in the city or don't have, you know, the ability to make a gigantic theater room in their house or whatever the case may be. I think it's exciting. So, but if you've never seen fire and ice, I really recommend, you know, watching this. I, I, in fact, there's, there's few movies I could recommend more. Um, the, you know, all the characters are, are really great. Again, not a whole lot of dialogue set or whatever. Um, you know, very, you know, conventional in a lot of ways, especially as far as sword and sorcery tropes go. Um, but strong characters and a, a well fleshed out world, a surprisingly well fleshed out world. And there's so many, and it highlights for me so many of the things that really only animation can do. That if you put, you know, and if in any way you put in real humans into the picture, it just doesn't work. 
you know, for some reason, just doesn't move that way. Uh, and so I, I love it. Fire and Ice, fantastic movie, 1983. Check it out. Frazetta, just, I mean, top of his game. I wish he kept on with that game, too. <laughs> after after that point, I would I would have loved a trilogy of Fire and Ice. It would have been amazing. So anyway, get, check it out. Uh, that's it for this week. Of course, if you uh, appreciate what I do on the show, please don't hesitate to donate to the show. Grab a copy of... Uh, uh, you know, Ninja Track or Hypercronius and the Epic of Gilgamesh, Ancient, uh, Audio of the Ancients, will be coming out very soon. Don't worry. Carpe Lucem, everybody. I'll see you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.